This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, many organizations around the U.S. now have diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, training programs. The thorny issues brought up in these sessions are far from easily fixed. And there are limits to what DEI experts can do when they parachute into an organization. It's on all of us to play a part in potential outcomes, which vary from harm to progress. A new book points to the ways we can choose to play those roles. Ruchika Tolshian is the author of Inclusion on Purpose, an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. Her work points to the attention, effort, and practice it takes to achieve diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations. Spoiler alert, Tolshian says we're not doing a great job. She begins by asking why that is. Tolshian focuses her book on the intersection of gender and racial bias as experienced by women of color in the workplace. She points to the benefits of exposing and dismantling structural bias, outlining how women of color have more to lose by speaking up. And she explores the importance of psychological safety in the workplace, saying employees need to know their organization has their back. Leadership plays an important role in this dynamic, but so do individuals at all levels of organizations, with all levels of understanding of structural racism. This conversation approaches its complex subject with seriousness, humor, and an eye toward solutions. Some of the questions addressed include, how do we have conversations about equity with people who think they cannot be guilty of perpetuating harm? What does safety look like in a space where you're trying to increase inclusion? And how much of corporate DEI work should be trauma-informed? It's an informative discussion and launchpad for continued work. Ruchika Tolshian is the co-founder of Candor, an inclusion strategy firm. She is interviewed here by author Ijeoma Oluo, who wrote the foreword to Inclusion on Purpose. Town Hall Seattle presented their conversation on March 1st. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Hello. Hello. Hi. It's so nice to be in here with people. I know. 
It's lovely. Thank you all so much. It means so much, especially for the folks who made it out in person. This is one of the first times I've been in a public setting um, and really means a lot. And thank you, Giomo. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. And I am so excited to talk about your book. I'm so excited to talk with you. But I figured for a lot of the audience who may not know like how we know each other, we would talk about that because I feel like our origin stories kind of lie in that. So we met at the establishment. Does anyone here know the establishment? <laughs> Wonderful. So for those who don't know, um, what you, you described the establishment. Um, it was, the, the sort of mandate was intersectional feminist publication that would cover issues that the mainstream media was basically missing. Right, like, yeah, I, yeah. So like, because it was kind of like our thought was like all angles are women's angles and not mm -hmm. just there's this one section. And then we, we strove to be very in, intersectional in that sort of feminist approach. But it was just a small little startup where um, I know for me, I had been working with some editors at another publication and they got some seed money I reached out and said, we're going to start this. It was the beginning of my writing career, really. I had just quit the worst corporate job in the world. I was doing marketing for the auto industry. Um, and it's like, if you took everything cool about Mad Men out, and we're just <laughs> left with the cigarettes and the misogyny. The misogyny, yeah. oh my gosh. That's where I worked. <laughs> Um, and so I had quit, was going to write, writing does not pay great, and nope. didn't know how I was going to keep my house, and got this call saying, would you like to be editor-at-large in this new thing where we got some seed money for it? And I was like, yeah, sure, great. And so we flew to San Francisco, stayed a week in the house, and I met you. It was amazing. It really was. Yeah. It was, I mean, the minute I met you, I knew you, you were a star, Right. <laughs> And this was before, so you want to talk about race. In fact, I remember in one of our calls, you said, you know, I, you know, I have this book that I'm selling. I think you had just sold the book. And, you know, the idea that someone was going to write, you were going to write about what racism really looks like and put words and put, sort of give people words to talk about those things that we face all the time as people of color. I was like, this person is going to be a star and I get to work with them every day. <laughs> and we had so much fun. It so was, fun. it had challenges. I'm so proud yes. of that space. Um, it was, even though I would say it was three white women and three women of color, color. Mm -hmm. The power dynamic, it was a very was white very women's clear. space. Mm -hmm. And so Ruchika and I worked together a lot. And there was a period of time where we were really, really the only people looking at pieces that required a more sensitive and informed yes. take. Yes. Because we had learned That's what happens when we didn't look at those before they went live. And we kind of bonded over that. And bonded over looking at, you know, building this space, we were trying to do something new, we had no idea what we were doing, which is also why it doesn't exist today, and, uh, and became friends. And I've, it's been so fun to watch as someone who used to 
edit a lot of my work, and then you kind of did a lot of your writing kind of on the side. Mm-hmm. You didn't write a lot for the establishment at the not. time. Um, and yet I was very aware that you had this whole other life that you were active in, this whole other space, especially looking at corporate and work environments for women in particular at the time. And to watch you build this whole thing in the years, it just makes me so happy. It feels like such a wonderful new book in this series where it really takes off. And then for you to reach out to me and ask me to write the foreword and to be a part of this event, it just warms my, warms my heart so much. And I just, I'm Thank so you. excited. So that's how we know each other. And I love Richika dearly, and this is so great. Thank you so much. I mean, we've, yeah, we've, we've been on an amazing journey. Um, I've obviously learned so much from Ijeoma's work. I think I do want to tell the story of the, the type of person you are. So um, I do some corporate work, um, and one of my corporate clients said, you know, oh, would it be possible to get Ijeoma Ulo as a speaker? And I said, yes, of course. And they're like, we have this fancy corporate retreat and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll pay for everything. We'll, we'll take you out to this beautiful part of the state, um, at, stay at this fancy resort. Um, and, you know, Geoma comes, comes um, and we have this wonderful conversation. I interview her on stage. We, the roles are reversed. And at the end of it, um, the, the two of us, sit down and hang out afterwards and I just say, so Ujima, what are you doing in the morning? Shall we grab breakfast together? And she said, no, I'm going to be driving out at 6 a.m. And I was like, why? I mean, what, what happened? Do you have another fancy speaking gig to go to? And she said, no, my, I'm going to drive back three hours to take my neighbor, my elderly neighbor, to the doctor because nobody else will. And I said, well, you two must be really close. And you said, not really. I don't think she even <laughs> likes me. <laughs> I don't think she likes anyone. And to me, I mean, I have so many more stories like that. Um, but, I, but I remember just, you know, and, and your, your star was shining brighter than ever. And I just remember sitting down at that moment and being like, I need to, I really need to absorb this energy and I need to learn from it. And this is this is really someone special. Like this is what it means to be a leader, right? Oh, so. thank you. I had forgotten about that. Man, that woman was a riot. Like, yeah, no, she uh, she had swords. Um, it was a lot. It was a lot. Uh, I I was very fortunate to be able to help her. But it was always an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, no, um, thank you. I had forgotten about that. And uh, I, I like to pretend I'm very antisocial. So it's nice to have reminders that <laughs> I do things sometimes for people. Um, but I want to talk about okay. this book. I right, would love to talk to <laughs> a little bit about, like, what was behind this, mm. this, this book? Because this is an expansion of, like, your, this is a broadening of your earlier work. And when I read through it, I saw how much care you took to be as truly inclusive. And I know, like, you know, it's in the title, right? Like, you're like, oh, well, yeah, it's called Inclusion on Purpose. But the truth is, is that people use words like this all of the time without actually being intentional. Um, And you can 
right? Mm. You can use these words without doing the work. And if you do just enough that people feel like they glean something, um, then you get that title. But I, I noticed the amount of care. And, and you had reached out to me even before you wrote it um, when you were doing research. And I would just love to know, like, why this book, you know, what kind of brought you into this space? Mm-hmm. And what was your thinking as you were engaging, you know, in your research and writing for it? This book is me making up for my follies and in some ways my sins of talking about gender diversity just as an issue um, that faced women. And when I said women, what I really meant or whom I was centering by just saying women were white women. And so this is my book. This is my hopefully somewhat... um, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to say like redemption, but some sort of way to publicly, it, learning in public, correct myself in public, and say actually, if we really want to create an inclusive workplace, it's not good enough just to say women need to progress in the workplace. It's women of color and centering black, indigenous, and Latinx women. And I. I, so, so that is that is really at the highest level what this book is about. The other thing that I that I want to talk about is how this statistic I read around the time we were working together at the establishment, which I think was life changing for me, which is three quarters of white people in America don't have a single friend of color, and ninety one percent of the average white person's social network is white. And I think when I read that statistic, suddenly it's as if all the puzzle pieces of my life as an immigrant in America suddenly made sense. I was like, oh, that's why the majority of people I meet um, don't know what to do with me. They're like, okay, so you have a funny name, and you say you grew up outside this country, but your English is very normal, I've been told that. Um, and you can communicate with us, but you're also different. Like, there's this whole, there's this mental calculation that goes on, and it makes sense. It's because for a lot of, especially white people, they have never met someone um, who is different than them or really materially connected with someone who's different than them. And then the same study that I read at that time said that the first time for a lot of white people that they really interact meaningfully with someone who's different than them racially is in the workplace. And it's literally like all the puzzle pieces fell together because, or or fit together for me because I've always been interested in the workplace. I've always been interested in leadership and management. I know that especially in capitalist societies, sadly, you know, businesses have an outsized impact on what happens, right, in our social lives. Um, I speak to women, you know, even when we think about parental leave, I speak to women who get 20, 30, 40 weeks of paid, you know, maternity leave because they work for a high-tech firm. And then I speak to women who go back, you know, one in four mothers in America go back to work 10 days after giving birth, right? And they're not the ones working in the high-tech industry. And so we know that corporate employers have an outsized influence in how society operates and the experience of people. And so for me, those, all those pieces really fell together. 
Um, and as I started researching the book, uh, researching for the book, speaking to women of color for their stories, on their stories, on um, the deep pain and trauma, I started finding healing within myself. I started finding healing for all those experiences, both in the workplace and outside the workplace, where I had really experienced marginalization, being overlooked, being underestimated. And I found healing in, in connecting with other women of color, centering as much as I possibly could underestimated women of color, um, and writing this book knowing that there is a power in sharing our stories and moving the needle in the workplace and hopefully beyond. That's beautiful. It's lovely. And to, to stay in kind of a personal space, when you were talking about, you know, how your earlier work kind of centered white women, I was imagining people looking at you and going, wait, what? How? What? Because you're not white. Invisibly, you are not white. Um, but I think that, that that's interesting because this is a thing we have talked about in the past, which is... Um, the immigrant experience mm -hmm. as a person of color, especially a privileged mm -hmm. immigrant experience, um, has layers that can often stop you from seeing your experience as a racialized one. Because there are so many other things. One, it can be your class that brought you here, mm -hmm. that puts you in a, in a space where you never had to consider the possibility of being seen outside of gender norms, um, but also all of the xenophobia and all of the other, you know, things that you do experience that everyone, especially people of color, experience when they come here that can seem like its own thing not really related to race, even though I would say uh, white men coming from France do not experience the same issues in a workspace that a woman of color would. Um, And then there's also the ways in which we don't, are, are not able to always keep in mind the ways in which our lives were shaped by white supremacy, even if we grew up in a majority place of color, right? So a lot of people I talk to, and you know, so I'm a black woman who grew up, you know, born and raised in, in the U.S., but also my father was a Nigerian immigrant, and I have siblings who've just been here a few years, And, and I can see the difference in it and that disconnect. And a lot of it when people talk to me and say, I don't feel connected to this struggle, I don't understand where my space is in it, a lot of it is because the ways in which white supremacy has shaped your life yes. through colonialism, yes. through capitalism, has not been made as readily apparent and the connections to how people of color are treated in this country haven't been made. And so it was interesting to watch as you became more aware of that. And we talked about your kind of understanding as not only you are a woman of color and you are treated as a woman of color, but still you have a, an abundance of privilege that shapes how you walk through the world. And I'm glad that you were coming to that awareness before you started writing this book because I can see in how you centered people. Were there things in the research of this book, in your conversations with women who, and other people of color who had less 
privilege that still continued to educate or surprise you in these discussions? Oh my gosh, so much. And firstly, I just want to say that there is not an immigrant who comes to, to the United States and isn't in many subtle and overt ways told that your key to success is by upholding white supremacy and also upholding anti-blackness. There is not an immigrant. I mean, there is research that's shown that even immigrants who, who appear and present as black mm-hmm. are told, or again, in subtle and, subtle and overt ways, you know, the, the, the more you distance yourself from the black African-American community, the, the more you're going to be able to succeed and rise, right? Um, and so I, I do want to name that because that is, that is a big failing, I think, that a lot of immigrants with privilege in this country, um, you know, that, that we have, that we really have done quite a lot of damage in upholding a white supremacy and anti-blackness, and especially in our, from our positions of privilege. So I, I absolutely want to name that. Um, there was, I mean, there wasn't a moment that I, when I was writing this book that I, or that I was interviewing someone for this book or studying the research that I wasn't not only educated, but deeply moved. And there were some interviews more than others, um, where I literally at the end of it had to go and lie down for a couple of days to try and digest, um, is, which is not what you want to do when you're on deadline and your editor is like, where's your chapter? And you're like, oh, I need three days to lie down and digest that, uh, you know, this four-hour Zoom call where someone, and of course we're in the depths of the pandemic. Um, and again, you know, and it just again and again recentered because I wrote this book in the depths of the pandemic. It recentered that reality that the way that you know, women of color with other intersecting marginalized identities um, were experiencing the pandemic were so different from the way that I was. Even you know, I as a woman of color was experiencing it, and it, it there was there wasn't a moment where I didn't feel educated, where I didn't feel like um, this story needed to be told. And and what I what what I'm thankful for is that it gave me the purpose in the middle of this pandemic. You know, it, it really, in many ways, I felt like it wrote itself. The rest of the book process is the most painful thing ever. I know we were talking about this backstage, whether it's like the book proposal, whether it's, you know, whether it's the, you know, the publicity, all of that. But the writing, once I spoke to women of color and then I started writing the book, that just flowed so naturally. Um, I think the the nuance of what it means to be a woman of color, and there's, you know, it's a social and political identity. Um, no, you know, women of color is an incomplete term, and we're certainly not a monolith. We have many, many different experiences. But the one commonality that this, that researching and writing this book taught me is that there's this thread of being underestimated, of being overlooked, and the degrees to which and how quickly you come to that realization very much differs based on your identity. In fact, when I interviewed you for the book and then didn't use the interview because then you said yes to writing the foreword. <laughs> but when I interviewed you, what, what, what clicked into place for me is you said there was not a moment, something along the lines of there was not a moment 
that I came into the workplace and thought that I would belong or be treated properly or equally, right? Like black women and black children are taught from a really young age, you live in a racist society and this is how you navigate. And something shifted in me because I was like, wow, because for me as an educated, college-educated brown woman, what I was taught is as long as you get all the education, you get all the experience, you start making money, of course people are going to treat you properly. Of course they're going to treat you equally. Race doesn't matter. And then that slow burn realization, um, no, it actually really does. Race and gender that intersection really does matter. And that was a profound shift for me at, when I spoke with you and then I interviewed other black women that, you know, they didn't have that luxury, you know? You don't have that luxury of thinking you can do anything, you can achieve anything you want, and then realize, no, actually, you know, that's not the case. You know it from day one. Mm-hmm. That's that's so interesting. Yeah, I've I've seen that. You know, in in, in the years I used to do, um, I used to have in, paid interns, and they were always young women of color. And a lot of them ended up being women of color who weren't black. And it was they were always at that age where I would get this call a few months in, and they would be in tears because something profoundly racist happened in a space where they thought it would never happen and recognizing oh you're at that age you know because it's not a thing that you know I mean uh, for me it's my whole life but part of me always wonders I don't know if I mean I would say there's a real toll for the ways in which we are robbed of developmental stages, even, right? Um, You are robbed of part of your childhood if your expressions of childhood are punished. And you don't get to go back at 30 and be a five-year-old learning risk and reward, right? Um, But also, (laughs) it's always been really weird for me to watch someone try to integrate an entire shift in, in how the world works at 25, 30, 40, um, because they had just, you know, because white supremacy does a good job of hiding its animus and its exploitation of people of color who aren't black or, or native. And I would say part of it, they use the animus towards black and native populations in order to do that because as long as you're not treated like that you kind of feel safe in this middle space Uh, but it's always been interesting for me to watch and 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 I'm always curious about it because it's not an experience there's so much of, of the experience I can say I know that's not one and then I wonder further like because the funny parts are the emails I get from white women just devastated, you know, uh, because they are 42 and they discovered racism is bad and it exists and they don't know what to do with themselves. And I'm just like, yeah. Oh, oh, you poor thing. But also I wonder like, oh, you know, you're going to have to make a choice now. Um, Do you sit down your, your partner and your friends 
and have new expectations of them uh, and set up all new relationships and give up watching those television shows you loved and stop participating in the same harmful activities when everyone is expecting this of you? Or do you pretend like you never learned mm-hmm. this lesson? And one thing I really like about this book is it's a piece it's, that is so rooted in the direct words of women of color in a way that is very unambiguous. Um, and it removes that option of people to pretend like maybe they didn't hear a thing. And I think in work environments, and, and I was, I'll ask you about it in a second, because I think we've both been in many corporate environments, um, it's very easy to have someone come in, talk about race and racism, leave, and you can kind of pretend like you didn't hear anything they said. Mm-hmm. And especially the way they're set up, because they're often set up so that someone external comes in, talks about things that never fully connect to what's actually happening in the space, um, gives some surface-level recommendations that really just reduce HR complaints and leaves. And then people can be like, oh, yeah. And this book has a lot of very first-hand experience and practical advice in it that makes it hard for people to go, well, okay, but, you know, what if we all just had a chat instead, you know, and, and didn't do these things, um, and, and, and I'm grateful for that. And I wanted to ask, because I, I, I do see some questions coming up around this too, and it's just such a hot topic, right? Everyone talks about DEI right now. And before people became scared of critical race theory, they were terrified of DEI. Um... And, and I will say, you have a lot more to be afraid of from critical race theory than DEI. Uh, DEI can't even scare racists. Um, but in the critique, there's a lot that is very valid. And I think there's a lot that people don't understand. Um, and a lot of anger around it is very misplaced. Some of it purposefully so. Um, but I was curious if, like, in looking at you know the wor- work you've done and trying to be very, I'm saying practical not in a sense of void of emotion, because I actually think the lived experience and understanding lived experience of people of color is one of the most practical things you can do, um, but practical in the sense of actionable. In trying to do actionable work, while also having been in many spaces that are seeking to do what people know as DEI work, what are some of the differences you see um, or some of the kind of common shortcomings or what, what gaps do you hope that this book can fill? Yeah. Great question. And, you know, Ijeoma, one of, the, one of the difficulties actually in conceptualizing this book in my head, you know, at least five years ago, um, shopping this to publishers, you know, in 2020, before, actually, the murder of George Floyd, at a time where diversity, equity, and inclusion um, essentially meant gender diversity, white women's progress, etc. And my hope was, you know, I can, I can hopefully change the conversation around that, you know, say there's, there's extreme value in using the words diversity, equity, and inclusion correctly, and centering that work correctly and taking it out of this check-the-box idea. And not that many people are talking about it in a very meaningful way. 
And I was really, you know, I was very hopeful that, okay, this book, the timing is right and it's going to come out and hopefully people will, will engage with it. And then the, the movement for racial justice happened, um, certainly sparked off by George Floyd's murder. Very, very important movement. And suddenly everyone was talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was I, like overnight I saw LinkedIn profiles change to inclusion strategist and diversity guru and equity, whatever it is. Um, and I fear that in many ways, and you know, I think hearing your question, in many ways I, I worry that the work has really been diluted, right, of what it actually what the essence of it is. Like, what does it actually mean to have a diverse, which means, what does it mean to have a workforce that is made up of people who have largely been underestimated and underrepresented and overlooked? Not how many, you know, different types of white men do you have, right? What does it mean to center equity? Which, you're ne- it's, it'll always be a process. It's not an outcome. You're looking at barriers and how to remove them. You're looking at inclusion, again, of people who have not been included in the workplace. It's not, you're not asking, again, five white women whether they are enjoying their experience and they like coming to work. Um, and so my hope with this book is, even though it's become a hot topic and, you know, whatever it is, and, and, and more people are talking about it, my hope is that people will also see the other side of how profound and meaningful this work can be if we do it together and we do it correctly, if we center anti-racism in diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. What gives me hope and what makes me optimistic is until two years ago when I was asked to speak at an organization, I was told, could you please not talk about race and can you please not mention um, you know, racism when you talk about, we just want to talk about diversity and of course I would say no. But I would get those requests. And now, you know, I don't know whether it's just because people feel scared to say that to me anymore or something has shifted, but I feel like at least there's some acknowledgement, much more than ever before, of the way that racism is really built into all of our systems and how we're navigating it. I'm going to give you a, a tip that you didn't ask for. Which Please. is, because I get things like this all the time, um, absolutely take those gigs because <laughs> once that contract's signed... And the money's wired and the in. Money, it doesn't even matter if the money's wired in. It's actually better if they try to not pay you. Um, very few companies, racist as they may be, are foolish enough to say, you talked about racism, we're not going to pay the brown person that we came in to talk about inclusion. I, I have literally had this happen. I actually had a, 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 a talk that people still walk up to me about um, for, for a certain government organization that wanted me to speak for Martin, for Dr. Martin Luther King day and asked me not to bring up a certain youth jail and I was like cool so now I'm only talking about a youth jail (laughs) and what are you going to do that was silly you should have never said anything because it was only going to be a sentence before and now it's like paragraphs Um, 
So always take it. <laughs> they will pay you. They weren't going to ask you back anyways. Um, and, and then you get to say the thing um, that the white person they would have moved on to wasn't going to say. No. So take, take the money and then do the thing anyway. That's, that's I'm my getting so tip. much out of this. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is so good. You know, it's so funny, too, because I, people are like, you probably shouldn't say that out loud. People won't call you. No, they don't listen to my talks. <laughs> if you're going to call me and be like, don't talk about this thing. You didn't, you've never heard of me before in your life. <laughs> Somebody who hates you told you to call me. <laughs> and uh, that's on you, because you didn't Google it. Um, Which, by the way, happens... All the it time. Does. To, to, <laughs> it does. And, and with the levity, I want to acknowledge, like, as women of color, like, you could be a New York Times bestseller, right? And Wall Street Journal bestseller. <laughs> you could be doing the thing. You could be literally, you could be on Trevor Noah. I mean, you, you, don't, need, you don't need a list of Ijeoma's accomplishments. And yet there will always be those moments that remind you, you know, Don't dream too high, mm -hmm. you know? Remember, you're still working in our system. You should be more grateful we gave you this opportunity. Yes. Right? And, yeah, and we were sort of talking about this earlier because there's a veneer to it. Um, you know, part of the reason why I started doing this work um, was the realization that there was no, you know, when I was working in corporate spaces, there was no promotion, no amount of financial security that was ever going to buy me the freedom to enter any, any mixed race space fully as a black woman and be safe and seen and heard and appreciated. That, that was never going to happen. And in fact, the opposite was going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, the more that people, quote unquote, gave me, no matter how hard I worked for it, the more I was going to be... Um, expected to play along and the more I'd have to lose and I just decided well I can either blow this up at 30 or I can blow this up at 60 it's all about how much of my own time I want to waste and and I and I just you know quit my job said I don't want to sell trucks anymore and started writing full-time but the funny thing is is even when you're doing this work even if your name is rising in doing this work it still happens. It's like, it's not, you don't actually, all the behind the scenes is just as toxic. Um, it's still just as exploitative. Um, the only difference is, is I, you know, I don't get fired for <laughs> saying the things that I wanted to say for a long, but, but there's still things you don't say, right? Yeah. You don't talk about your publisher. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't talk unless about this. Unless you're backstage. Yeah, unless you're backstage. <laughs> Um, and so it's, it's an interesting space and you don't, you, do, you still don't get comfortable no. and part of how you navigate it is by the relationships you yes. have and, and how you get through even doing this work. And I think a lot of times there's this idea that people who do, people of color who do any work around race or ethnicity live in this space where one, we like talking about it all the time, which we don't. Um, but also, oh, well, I'm sure you don't encounter the racism then. Like, who's going to be racist to you? <laughs> They know who you are. And like, everyone. Everyone. Literally everyone. Everyone. Literally. And it, it, it's so ingrained in society. It really is. 
What keeps you going in that? Because I know that a lot of times when I talk with other people, like there's, there, there are regular body blows of just like, oh, come on, I, here too, I just want to do this thing. That can be really discouraging when you're doing the work. That, and you do a lot of work, right? So you're not just the author of this book, you're mm-hmm. also a teacher, mm-hmm. a speaker, an educator, and what keeps you going in this work? I hope it doesn't sound trite, but it's because I have a five-year-old brown boy who's going to grow up in America, or who he is growing up in America and is American. And just the way the experience I had when um, I said to my mom during one you know, birthday party where my friend called me the night before, and she said, I can't come to your birthday party. My mom said, I can't come to your birthday party because you're Indian. That's going to happen to my son as well. And I don't want that to continue on. I, I am, I'm truly fighting for a world where I, know, I, I don't know if I can prevent it, right? I don't know if I can prevent it. He's already five. But really for as much as I possibly can, you know, for our, for our kids, right? Mm-hmm. That's really what keeps me motivated. That's what keeps me going. Because otherwise, it is so hard to do this work. Honestly, if I could go back to my job in marketing, I was a journalist before that. I would. Mm-hmm. There are times where I'm like, you know, would it, mm-hmm. would it just be easier? Would it just be easier to go to bed at night and not wake up in the middle of the night with that existential dread of, wow, like what is actually happening, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what keeps me motivated and optimistic is hopefully we can build this future you know, where others don't have to deal with, or at least not with the same intensity of what we had to deal with. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. My kids are old enough that I just say, no matter how despondent I am, <laughs> there's always a smelly teenager who's complaining <laughs> of the lack of snacks now, and it kind of keeps me going, the reminder that Um, Some people don't give a shit about who you are, the work you do, if you've run out of Capri Sun. And thanks for that tip as well. It gives me perspective. Your kid's not quite old enough yet, but once once he's old enough to smell bad in a different way, because I know five-year-olds have their own funk. Um, Yes. They help. The help. The narcissism of, of children, I find it to be quite helpful. I want to get into some of these questions because there's a lot and I do this thing where, you know, when I'm talking with someone that I adore, I talk, 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 and then we don't have time for great questions. Um, let me see if I can turn this because I can't actually read the whole, <laughs> the whole thing. There are also long questions. Oh, okay. From what I can see. Yeah, y'all were the writers. Excuse me. No, I'm sorry. Um, no, these are great. I'm sure. They're lovely. Let's see. All right. Um, can and this is a good one. This is a really good one. Okay, I'm um, ready. All right. Can individuals create a more equitable workplace culture before leadership is on board? If they can, how? If they can, what would you do instead? I'll answer the last part. If you cannot leave, <laughs> I mean, there is very little worth the toxicity and the long-term trauma of working, um, you know, in an organization that doesn't fully respect and value you 
And I know I say that from a position of privilege, and I, when I left my job for that reason, um, I, I could say that because I, I had the privilege to be able to do so. But just when I spoke to women for this book, to women of color for this book, it was very clear that that long-term impact of working in places that aren't equitable and inclusive, there's just, it's just so, so painful. It just takes so much out of you. Now, what I think is, what, what I believe in, and what I, you know, sort of the, the hill that I'm willing to die on, is that inclusion is a leadership trait. I truly, fundamentally believe that leaders and workplaces of now, and especially innovative workplaces of now and the future, are going to be led by leaders that value and prioritize inclusion and think of it as the number one most important leadership trait. So my belief is that for people who are working for organizations where they want to, where they believe that there's change to be made, I do think there is um, the importance of building a tribe of people whom you can connect with and whom you can build solidarity with, especially look for advocates. I, 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 hesitate with the word allies, right? And I think it's been misused a lot. But really what you need is someone who's an advocate, like someone who will step up and say something because they know and understand how their privilege and influence will be viewed when they step up and speak up about racism or incidents of bias, exclusion, etc. I think that's the first step in finding sort of that tribe and building it up as you continue on. Um, in your journey to try and educate the leadership. I do think that there has to be a cutoff point too. And, I, and one of the things that gave me a lot of inspiration is talking to the women of color in this book um, and feeling really validated in that experience, you know, in experiences when I left the corporate workforce, when I didn't even have words, right? Part of why I wrote this book is because I remember that time when I didn't have words to describe what I was going through I was like, I think what I dealt with was bias and exclusion, but I don't have a word. Like, are those the right words? You know, nobody was talking about it. People were talking about lean in and, you know, negotiate and confidence and this, that, and the other. Nice girls don't get the corner office. And so what really, um, what, I, what, I, what I wish I could go back and tell myself then and why you know I wrote this book in in some ways is now that I have the language and so many women of color spoke to me about the validation they feel and experience when we speak to other women of color about our experiences and also when our white allies and when our white advocates and our white um, you know supporters really and champions also listen and learn and step up and validate hey, I think, what, I think what happened was absolutely wrong and I'm going to say something because I know that the way you experienced this was wrong and I also know that when I step up and say something, I, it's, going to be less, it's going to be heard very differently than when you say it, right? And so, yeah, that's what I would do. That's lovely. That's great. I, I would say to add to that too, um, if you are a person of color, asking this, or a trans person, disabled person in a workspace, never invest in your workspace. Please don't. Like, I, I'm saying this from a firmly 
um, anti-capitalist perspective of someone who also likes to buy a lot of things. Don't emotionally invest, never invest in the betterment of your workplace um, because it will never invest in you. That's not the way capitalism works. Invest in yourself and your peers who are also at the crosshairs of the vagaries of racist capitalism and nothing more. And that means, like, when you're talking about changing an organization, uh, recognize that it's not going to thank you, and you do know right away if it's a space that wants to make the change necessary. And so the change you do make and the investments you make should be really on a human scale and really be, what helps me get through this day? What helps my peers of color... My trans peers, my disabled peers get through this day. What are the small practical things we can focus on and not how do I make this company suddenly care? Um, because they won't. If you're white, oh, sure, go for broke. Um, because you're not going to get punished for it. And yes. you're going to get rewarded for those efforts in a way that other people will not. And you may make some small changes because your privilege enables you to but like I think a lot of times when these questions come in I want people to let go of this thought that corporations care about them they don't individuals within corporations can your manager can your VP can Mm. but at the end of the day they are profit making enterprises Mm steeped in the blood of populations of color mm-hmm. and they can't break from that without ceasing to exist so keep your focus on a human level and it'll be more effective that way yeah um, it is. don't don't sacrifice yourself or your peers to a big vision that's not going to happen I'm, I'm just a ray of sunshine when it comes to... <laughs> it's the time. <laughs> yeah, maybe this is why nobody invites me back. Um, other question here. This is, oh, this is from a former student Ooh. who is a big fan oh. and pre-ordered the book and can't wait to I read it. I love my students. Can I just say I love my students? You have lovely I students. I love my students, and yes. I have spoken with them, and they're lovely, and you could tell that you create an environment where they really feel empowered to express themselves and ask questions and be wrong and learn things, and that's wonderful. Sometimes you go and talk to a class, and people just stare at you, and they're (laughs) terrified of seeming wrong, especially in college spaces. Yes, And it's it's wonderful that you create that space. The question is, in my experience, some of the most biased, harmful actions in the workplace often come from people who see themselves as champions of diversity and equity. How do we have conversations about equity with people who think they cannot be guilty of perpetuating harm? When, when you find out, let me know, because I <laughs> have had such a tough... I've had some really tough experiences, and I've had tough experiences recently where people are like, we're going to pay you this huge fee to come in and speak to us, and then in the prep call, treat me terribly. And then when I'm like, that was racist, they're like, I'm sorry you walked away feeling bad. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, know how to, I didn't know how to respond. And at that moment, in moments like that, 
I'm, again, back to privilege. I have the socioeconomic privilege to say I'm definitely not doing that and I'm going to walk away from that because my mental health and my self-respect is more important. And I know I'm really privileged to be able to say that. Um, honestly, I just... I don't have I don't have a good answer. I wish I had a nice quote that could tell you all about like how you could go and find your your allies and you could do this and you could do that. I don't. It's it's going to be really hard. It's painful. Um, I think the the only thing that I could think of and in in the situation I was in, unfortunately, it was someone who was leading diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes, yeah, she was a white woman, um, and there was just no way to. There was no one else whom I could have that conversation with. If this is a job that you cannot leave, if it's a situation you cannot walk away from, find someone with privilege whom you trust who can have that conversation with them because it should not be the role of women of color, people of color, people with other marginalized identities to solve. And that's something that I'm very clear about in the book. I am, I am the opposite of trying to ask women to lean in or asking people of color, like, here's what, here are 10 steps to, you know, bring up racism and microaggressions in your workplace or to heal from the trauma. There are some amazing books that do that. I want to pay homage to books, you know, like Right Within by Minda Hartz. Uh, my friend Deepa Purushottaman's book is out today on women of color in corporate America, um, the first, the few, the only. Um, but that's that's not where I'm coming from, right? My I am talking to people who perpetuate harm, who need to do the work in themselves. They need to build the awareness. They need to build the empathy. They need to do the listening. They need to do the learning. And it is not your problem to solve. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, some of the most important advice for people to understand is you don't have to invest that much <laughs> in people who don't want to do the work. Um, yes. I think we really overvalue whiteness. Yes. And the amount of people who reach out to me, I've tried this, I've tried this. Why are you trying this hard? For someone who can't even be uncomfortable for one conversation, like how much do you value your time in comparison to the possible enlightenment of this very, you know, deliberately ignorant person? Um, And it's important to recognize like where that programming that says, and that is a deliberate programming. If we watch movies about race or any other kind of deeply marginalized group um, and the troubles they come through, it's always through this lens of like the white, cis-abled person, you know, protagonist who is being bettered by the situation, coming into her full self and we absorb that messaging as well. Yes. And we are often told that our work is to, to better someone. Don't you care? Don't you love people? Wouldn't you want them to be? No, I don't care. <laughs> you can be better on your own, in yes. your own time. Yeah. I, I, my betterness requires yes. wholeness. But it's a real thing, and it's a real hurt. And all I could say, honestly, is give yourself space to process that. Yes. Allow that, you know, recognize it shouldn't be that way and that it sucks, and it hurts. And then, I would say, speaking as someone who has white family, this is often where it comes up with me, and it does come up with me professionally, you have to really think about what that ideal would be. A lot of times we go into these situations with no idea of how this would turn out if it went right. And 
that doesn't give us a direction to steer things in, mm-hmm. and it doesn't give us a barometer to tell how far short we've actually fallen, and it doesn't give us a chance to look at someone and say whether they are or are not capable of it. So when you're dealing with someone and they're you know, starting to get in your way and you start thinking, what would, you know, if I worked in a space where this person who's in DEI and they're awful really got it, how would this conversation go? What would they be doing? How would I be feeling right now? And then look at them and think, are they capable of that? Yeah. And if they're not, you know. And then you can try to protect yourself. And that's really the only advice I can give you. Yes. If they are, then you can offer that opportunity to them if you're feeling generous or ask someone else to give that right. or ask someone to require that of them. But know what the ideal actually looks like before you start investing so that you can say how far short because some of y'all really invest in people who are so far off of even being helpful or just not being the biggest obstacle to your ability to work in peace and you're like oh come on you know if we have one more conversation I'm like no that you're so far away from there are not enough conversations in the world to get this person there that instead you need to say what do I need to do to mitigate the impact this person can have on my life what can I do to make sure they can't impact how I get through my day? And, and that's where you need to stretch, you know, switch your strategy. But if you're looking at it and you think, yeah. oh, you know what? Actually, I think we're almost there. I think we're close. Then you can decide whether it's worth it or not. But step away from the thought that everyone's worth investing in. They're yeah. not. I believe in the fundamental value of humanity. It also means I believe in the funda- fundamental ability of people to grow and change if they choose. Yes. It's a choice. I mean, that is literally fundamentally what this book is about. It's a choice. And I also think sending them Ijeoma, both of Ijeoma's books is probably a good <laughs> idea. I mean, part of, part of and, and you know, and, in all seriousness, part of our work as writers, and here I'm, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to speak for both of us for a second, but I think part of processing this, the pain and the trauma in public is hopefully so that there are other people who can take some of this mm-hmm. and have the conversations and maybe where it's not safe for them to do, right? And I can't speak for someone whom, you know, I, I, I can't speak, I can't say to someone, you know, just walk away if you need the paycheck. Um, but I hope that having some of these resources, right, having words written in places like the New York Times and the Harvard Business Review and the Guardian, um, will allow others going through these traumas to actually take these words to people and say, look, this exists, it's true. Please, you know, please see me. Please know that what I'm dealing with is real. Um, and, and, it's, and it's out there, you know, and I don't have to risk directly talking about my own experience, Right. And that's part of the, why we do the work we do. Absolutely. Right? That's part of when I think of the work, like when I hear from black women who are like, look, I don't even answer questions anymore. I just point to the book that's on my desk because I'm the only black person on this team. And they're like, uh, Sherry, like, uh, is this racist? I'm like... <laughs> page, page 62. Um, it's really helpful. But what you, what you pointed to is something I think that is so crucial that a lot of times people don't realize. A lot of times people are like, what's the practical application mm-hmm. of this work? And I'm all for that. But also what you just spoke to is something I think that's really vital that every time a book like this comes out, I think it adds to, which is it's a, it's a weapon against the collective gaslighting. Yeah 
of people that's yes. done, right? When you have books that seek to expand your idea of what could be and books that seek to document what is happening and seek to call a thing a thing, it's a thing that you can go to and say, this is real. And you can, it's a touchstone. And I would say that, you know, the previous question, I was like, this looks like Seattle in question form. What is it like to live in Seattle? Well, it's like, it's like you are in a really poorly run DEI department. <laughs> you know, like it's just... Where everyone's in Everyone DEI means well. Nobody. Everyone marched with King. Um, it's everyone really, has a pink hat. Yes, yeah. everyone has, has their pink hat. And everyone has that you know, in this home we belong, uh, sign on their, in their yard. And, and don't have a single friend of color. Don't have a single friend of color. You know, um, they have, the, you know, I, I am the darkest skinned person they know. Um, and, you know, that's Seattle in, in a nutshell. And so things like this help a lot. And, and it's, you know... I think seeing a lot of these that are workplace specific is important because that is a space where so much of it's done, especially in areas like this, where companies like to pretend like they have a political bent that isn't just make money. Um, spoiler alert, it is just make money. It really is. Whether you recycle or not, it's really about making money. And the companies will tell you through their, like, World Food Day, everyone bring in a dish from your culture. And you're like, oh, well, that's our diversity for the, for the year. Um, they'll tell you they have it down, and then it's even harder to say that it's not right, to say that something's wrong. And books that actually write it down and document it, and you have other experiences you can read through, especially if you're in a majority white space, are super helpful. And I think that this book is going to be a huge part of that, and I would say probably one of the more immediate benefits is even if you can't change the system, you can at least look at it if you're a woman of color in a workspace and say, oh yeah, this, this really is fucked up. <laughs> and that's important because when things are wrong, yes. we need a reason why. Yes. And the world tells us it's us. Yes. And it's not. And that can be incredibly damaging to go through thinking you're either unlucky or you've lost touch with reality or you have done something to bring this upon yourself instead of, oh, this happens all the time to people who look like you. I mean, white supremacy tries to keep us apart, uh-huh. right? And this is part, I mean, circling back to your to what you said about, you know, the different experiences among women of color. For immigrants, many of us are taught to, again, uphold anti-blackness, I I will say, um, for me, it was only in really connecting with black women that that I really got a rooting into what it means to be a person of color in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this in a, you know, in a, a sort of cursory way, but really deep understanding and rooting because so much of white supremacy is geared to keeping us apart, to, to us fearing each other, to us not wanting to show up for each other, for us not wanting to say that our struggle is similar. Even when I was choosing terminology for the book, I knew the term women of color 
is incomplete. I knew that it's imprecise, and I still chose it because the social and political identity of what it means to be a woman of color is so powerful, and I will not let anyone take that away from us. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. And it is important that we decide. I, I was in conversation with Kathy Park Hong a couple of weeks ago, and one thing that we talked about is a deep desire I've had for a long time, which, by the way, there's people asking about navigating inclusion and safety at the same time. Um, I think it is vital in all spaces for, and, and something I deeply, deeply desire, for communities of color to come together yes. without the presence of whiteness and be able to define our relationships to each other without that. Because whiteness gets its hands in it all the time. And it's hard to even have really important conversations, say, about anti-blackness in immigrant communities or Asian communities, um, and talk about that healing that needs to happen, talk about you know, anti-Asian hate rising in black communities. Mm-hmm without whiteness coming in and being like, ooh, you know, what can I do with this, you know? Mm-hmm. And you can't be open and honest, and you can't share pain, and you can't talk um, about what it means to move forward without it being exploited. Uh, and we need that space. And I think in work environments, we need that as well. And yes. especially if you are in a majority white space, you have to come up, you have to have a space where you can get with other people and actually feel safe and level set and talk and share. I mean, divide and conquer was a colonial strategy. It was Mm -hmm. used by the British for over 500 years, right? Especially in India. So I don't use use the term divide and conquer. And what was, again, to me, very apparent when I came to the United States as an immigrant 10 years ago is, oh, it's divide and conquer at large. Right? This is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I know you have a question. No, actually, so I would, I, would, I would love to actually, because I think we've talked about this a little bit, but haven't focused on it exclusively. Someone wants to know, what do you think safety looks like in a space mm-hmm. where you're trying to increase inclusion? Mm-hmm. So I talk about psychological safety in the workplace, and it's a concept that's really dear to my heart. Um, person who brought it into the public for um, was Dr. Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School in 1999. And really this concept of for, uh, you know, high growth, innovative organizations and teams, um, the one common factor that they have is they have psychological safety where people feel they can take a risk, they can speak up, they can make mistakes, they can fail, and they will still have status and they will not lose face with their peers and their managers and leaders. And when I read this work, it became so clear to me, um, and you know, Amy and I have actually had multiple conversations about how her work did not take an intersectional or inclusion lens and they could have done a lot more around um, especially centering, you know, what, what it looks like uh, when you consider race in terms of psychological safety and who has the least psychological safety typically in an organization. But I think what clicked to me and became immediately apparent is if you can work for an organization and be part of a team where you can take those risks, where you can fail, where you can you know, 
even look stupid, essentially, ask the stupid questions. This, is, this always happens in my classes, right? Even in, in many of my journalism classes, there'll be only one or two uh, cis white guys, and they will always, I'll be like, any questions? They're the first ones to raise their hands. The women of color are a bit like, mm, should I, you know? And then they'll ask a profoundly intelligent question, but right at the end, right, when all the air has been sucked out of the room by everyone else. And, and what, I, what I find is, you know, we blame women in those in- instances. We say, oh, you know, women of color, they're being submissive and they're shy and women don't speak up in the classroom. No, generally they don't have psychological safety. And so part of my role as an educator when, you know, when I was teaching um, college classes, I'm taking a little break because being an author is exhausting and being an educator is exhausting too. Um, so much love for teachers and thank you to uh, Sonaraja and Theo Nestor uh, in the audience who do so much amazing work um, with, with your teaching. But the point I was trying to make is we really um, blame women, and especially women of color, for not speaking up when so many of us lack the psychological safety to be able to do so, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, inclusion truly will look like the future that I envision is one where we can. We can ask those stupid questions. We can ask those fully formed questions, you know, be a bit like, I'm, this, I, I bet this is really silly and I'm still going to say it because I'm still going to be respected. I'm not going to lose a grade or I'm not going to lose a promotion or I'm still going to be considered a leader. Um, for me, that's the safety that I envision. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And I would, I would love it too if you could talk a little bit about like what you do in your classroom to create that space because I do think that a lot of that can apply. And one thing I would add as well is part of that safety is choice. So a lot of times what I like to stress is we don't have a choice as to when something racist hits us. And we don't get to pick for a time when we don't have anything else going on, when we're well rested, you know, when we've had our lunch. It hits us whenever. And one of the fundamental things if you're in a work environment and you say you care about safety is choice. And this means that when you start your DEI efforts, your inclusion efforts, that you're consistently getting consent um, from participants of color, that you are consistently making sure it actually benefits them, and that you are talking with them and finding out what stops them from feeling like they can fully participate. And it also means sometimes giving up the opportunity to learn if it's going to create a space of unsafety for participants of color, especially women of color. Um, And that choice aspect is one that I think a lot of people forget. I think, you know, you and I were at an event. Um, It was like, I don't, it was some woman's thing. I don't know, you... 2018. Yeah, I don't know. It was when that one weird lady, like, misquoted me. Anyways, um, (laughs) it was a weird drama. And we did a little speaking event with a group of, like, women, many professional women. And there was a woman of color who... It really did change a lot of my work because my book was out, people were reading it, and she was talking about how they were going to be doing a... uh, That her work had been reading it. And her team was going to have a book discussion. It's the very first one. And she couldn't even finish talking about it before she started crying because she said, I'm the only woman of color on my team. Mm. And what I was like, oh, no. 
because here I'd written this book to try to be helpful, but it was absolutely going to be the source of a lot of unsafety and pain for her in this discussion because no care had been given to the power dynamic in that space, to what she would even get from the conversation. And, you know, I call that the prioritization of the edification of whiteness over the humanity of people of color, right? Um, And that really helped me realize, like, oh, no, there needs to be a so you want to talk about, so you want to talk about race. Mm -hmm. Because... We don't do that, but that safety aspect was one that for me, as someone who works very independently, um, I can just tell people to go away. You know, I, I, I can say the thing, I'm not going to get fired. It's been years right. since I was going to lose a promotion or lose a job for speaking openly. If I lose a writing gig, a speaking gig, fine, I pick up another one. But that's a privilege I have now that I didn't have for a long time. Um, so that safety is, is hugely vital. Um, Oh, yeah, so I was going to ask you, when you're teaching, because, you know, there is the, you, you notice the problem, but there is actual like, work you have to go through to correct that, and I think people can learn from, kind of, what do you do to foster that environment in your classrooms? One of the things that I found really powerful, in fact, I find it more when I moderate and when I, um, you know, back in the day when we would have public events more often. This is, you know, still a little rusty right now. But I, what I would find is centering women of color in that experience would actually be really powerful. So I remember when I was asked to, you know, moderate discussions or have, you know, do speaking engagements where audience Q&A back in the day when you weren't all masked and, you know, you could take the mic and ask a question, I would actually say I would like I, I would like the first question to be asked by a woman of color, or like the first question I'll take will be um, from a woman of color. And when I center um, women of color, I have found that that really, really creates safety, at least in that moment, um, and it sets the tone for what is acceptable and what isn't going to be acceptable um, in that you know, in that environment, in my classroom, etc. Um, I do really try and foster anti-racism in my classroom. And in the book, I talk about this incident, you know, thanks to and, and Theo. Um, I took a class with Theo Nestor, an amazing memoir class at Hugo House. And um, we started the class talking about, you know, anti-racism and what does it mean to have an anti-racist classroom. And I just, it was a profound learning moment for me because for me as a woman of color, it was like, of co- you know, of course my classroom is anti-racist. I don't actually have to name it. Like, I don't have to have these rules. But I actually found that in having rules, um, I felt so much safer as one of the few women, women, people of color in that classroom because we were actually starting the class talking about what does it mean to create an anti-racist classroom, and part of that was do not turn to a person of color and ask them to explain or to go into detail about, you know, how an incident was racist or how a text, you know, was racist or whatever it is. And I realized that that is something that I really, you know, needed to take away in my classroom. It wasn't a given. You know, my hope was because I talk about it and people will know who I am, my students know who I am, but no, you have to name it. You have to name it. If you are a manager and leader, you have to name my, my role. My hope is that I can create an anti-racist, inclusive, equitable environment. Here's what that looks like. 
you know, let's co-create that together. That's beautiful. Yeah, and I think that intentionality is vital. I think a lot of times we like to keep things in the, in the touchy-feely space. Yes. And I think especially in corporate environments, we need to really, you know, recognize these are structures that are in place and that we actually operate out of structures. We operate out of what we think is appropriate or not, what is expected or not, and you have to do an intentional shift. And that, that brings me to a question I saw here. I have no idea how long this is supposed to be, by the way, so until someone stops me, <laughs> I'm going to just keep talking. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's been a while and y'all forgot what I'm like here at Town Hall, but uh, um, if you, we, if you want make, this to end... <laughs> you, you'll have to say something. <laughs> Otherwise, we would just be here. <laughs> I mean, you and I could talk. Yeah, exactly. It. Like, we're fine. I ate dinner. So... Um, Should we make this our last Okay, <laughs> we'll make this our last question. All right. More um, so I can go backstage and talk to you about Yeah, look. <laughs> I know, we need to catch up. Um... So a question here that I saw that I thought was, that was really, I don't know, that intrigued me a lot, which is how much of corporate DEI work do you think should be trauma-informed? All of it. I mean, all of it. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that it's not and the fact that so much of it is not and the fact that I go into so many organizations where people of color are doing this on top of their full-time jobs and the trauma that, that, that they have to deal with, you know, doing it on top of their full-time jobs, not getting paid, not getting recognized, you know, having to deal with all the, you know, bias and exclusion and all of that and racism, it should absolutely be trauma-informed. I mean, there... I mean, I, I don't have enough words to articulate how strongly I think it needs to be. I just wish, what I, what I really wish is that more leaders, more any, I, I just wish people with societal and workplace privilege could recognize what it feels like, right? What it really feels like. I don't know, my hope is that some of the stories in this book will capture that at least help you understand. Put, your, put yourself in the shoes of someone who has to go into work every day knowing that they don't, um, you know, knowing they don't belong, knowing that they're going to have to deal with microaggressions and racism and bias. Um, I mean, a study found that I think, I think it was 80% of black people did not want to move back into an in-person environment because they were so frustrated. They were so not ready to deal with microaggressions and everyday, quote-unquote, casual racism. I mean, that is the reality of what we're dealing with, right? For so many of us, day in and day out, having to deal with coworkers who just don't understand you and you still do the work, right? There's deep trauma there. So I really hope where DEI work can be transformative is when it is trauma-informed and when we recognize the additional emotional labor um, that so many of us have to take on when we do this work. Absolutely, absolutely. Do you think that there's healing to be had in the work? Yeah, when we connect with people 
like each other, right? Mm -hmm. And when we know that we're not going it alone, when especially when I was starting out the way that I could just text you and just be like, this ridiculous thing happened to me. And, you know, the, the words that you would say and so many others would say, yeah, of course, there's such beauty and healing in the solidarity that gets built when you get to do this work together, right? And again, because of that purpose. I mean, this work, it is not going to happen in our lifetime, right? It's not. I'm not doing this so that tomorrow... I'll come into, into, you know, I'll re-enter the corporate workplace or I'll be invited to speak at a place where I will be treated so wonderfully and be given sort of all the, um, you know, the equity that I deserve. It's, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. We are working, we are working to a future that we will not live to see. And that's what this work is about. And the healing is knowing that we're doing it together. It's beautiful, and I think a wonderful way to end this talk. And I'm so proud of you, and this is wonderful, and I hope that, I know that y'all will love this book, and I'm just really glad it's out there in the world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. Thank you. Town Hall Seattle presented this conversation with Ruchika Tolshian on March 1st. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.